Welcome to This Week I Learned, your audio guide to the most surprising discoveries and fascinating studies of the week. I'm your host, Lauren Hansen. This week I learned that Brazil and France almost went to war over lobster. This was back in the 1960s, before we had any sort of international maritime governance or agreements. It was basically like the wild, wild west of the ocean. Around 1961, some French fishermen moseyed on over to the Brazilian coast looking for lobsters. The locale was perfect for the catch. Lobsters were plentiful and easy to access in the relatively shallow depths. So a few boats put down an anchor and got to fishing. Naturally, Brazilian fishermen were none too pleased. Now, according to the 1958 Geneva Convention, all countries had rights to whatever natural resources were under or over the continental shelves. The loophole was that the convention didn't explicitly mention what should be done with any crustacea or swimming species. But there was some sort of line drawn in the sand for fishermen. Brazil claimed exclusive rights to sea creatures walking along the continental shelf within a certain radius of its coast, and the French basically respected Brazil's claim. But when the French started poaching Brazil's lobsters, Brazil called foul, and the ensuing dispute came down to a fundamental disagreement. Are lobsters fish? The Brazilians claimed the shellfish were crawlers distinctly on the shelf and therefore available exclusively to Brazilians. But the French argued that lobsters were similar to fish that swim around rather than rest on or under the shelf. Basically, the moment the lobster was no longer in contact with the continental shelf, it forfeited its allegiance to the crustacea. It could be considered fish and was therefore up for grabs. Both sides tried to negotiate, but to no avail. Eventually, the argument escalated when rumors swirled that Brazil was bringing in its navy, and a few ships were seized. The French, in retaliation, sent its own battleship, and for two years, the two nations stayed on the brink of war. Finally, in 1964, the two sides were able to come to an agreement— Or rather, the French relinquished, because Brazil was able to extend its claim over the continental shelf so that it would cover 200 nautical miles and include fish and lobsters alike. The new claim consumed the area where the lobster beds live, so the French claim was moot. But the Brazilians did extend an olive branch. They allowed a couple dozen French ships to have a license to fish in Brazilian waters, so all was not lost. This week I learned that UPS drivers don't turn left. It's an efficiency policy that was started back in 2004. Even if it means making a literal loop to the destination, drivers are encouraged to avoid left-hand turns as much as possible. When you boil it down, UPS's business is all about logistics. Using more than 100,000 vehicles, UPS delivers nearly 20 million packages and documents daily. So the company is constantly trying to figure out ways to save fuel, save money, deliver more packages, and become more efficient at it all. So back in 2001, when better tracking systems emerged, UPS engineers found that left-hand turns were a major drag on efficiency. 
Turning against the traffic meant longer waits, more wasted time, and wasted gas. It also led to a disproportionate number of accidents. So UPS began mapping out new routes for their drivers that involved a series of right-hand loops. And apparently, it worked. As of 2012, the right-hand rule, along with some other improvements, saved the company yearly about 10 million gallons of gas, delivered 350,000 more packages, and reduced emissions by the equivalent of taking 5,000 cars off the road a year. Now, there were some natural skeptics, so some people did test the theory. Does turning right make you faster and save you more gas? They found the gas savings for sure, but their route did take longer. But UPS had an answer for that, too. They said that their drivers can also use their discretion. So if they're on a quiet residential street with no traffic, then yes, by all means, take a left. But for about 90% of the time, UPS drivers are going right all the way. This week I learned why whales leap majestically into the air. It's actually a form of communication, an acoustic telegram, if you will, a nice loud hello to far-off pods. Ocean animals depend on sound to communicate in the murky ocean depths because it travels more efficiently than light. And humpbacks are among the best-known ocean vocalists. Their wide range of feeding and social calls are among the most complex. While these calls can travel great distances, they can also get drowned out by the ocean's loud noises, or if it's a really windy day. So whales have developed more impenetrable forms of communication, using their massive bodies. They'll slap the surface of the water with their fins or tail, and when they really want to get someone's attention, they'll breach. They'll propel themselves into the air, twist, and fall back onto the water like a massive mallet to a drum. For this study, researchers out of Australia observed 76 humpback whales for 200 hours over the course of a year. And their study suggests that surface slapping helps different pods of whales maintain a sort of diplomacy, both between them and within small groups. They found that breaching is used to communicate between pods rather than within one, and it was used when other pods were more than 2.5 miles away, so at greater distances. At shorter distances, the whales were more likely to fin or tail slap the water. But here's what's really interesting. Breaching was more often performed during migrations, which is when most whales are fasting. And yet, breaching takes quite a lot of energy. Scientists say that this suggests that breaching communication is a really important tactic for humpbacks. This week I learned about the Apollo astronaut who was allergic to the moon. Harrison Schmidt, who went by Jack, was an astronaut aboard NASA's last manned moon mission, Apollo 17, in 1972. Schmidt was actually the first and last professional scientist to walk on the moon. All previous Apollo astronauts had a background as military pilots, but not Schmidt. Schmidt was a geologist who had spent the better part of a decade studying the moon's landscape, its lunar surface, dust, and rocks from afar. 
So when NASA came looking for scientists for their final mission, Schmidt didn't hesitate to volunteer. But he had to spend more than a year training, logging thousands of hours of flying time. Then, finally, in 1972, he lands on the moon. On his very first moonwalk, though, he came into a bit of a snafu. The lunar roving vehicle kicked up such a huge cloud of lunar dust that Schmidt had trouble moving his arms. Now, here's the thing about moon dust. It's kind of terrible. Because there are no natural processes to erode the micrometeorite dust that covers the moon, it just continues to be this really harsh material. It's effectively like finely powdered glass, and it can be a huge health hazard if inhaled deeply. And it clings to everything. It gets lodged into crevices of all kind. And it's so harsh that it can literally chew through layers of the astronaut's protective gear as it did with Schmidt. Now, when Schmidt and his fellow astronauts finally returned to the lunar module after the mini dust storm, they didn't really realize yet how bad it was. It took them ages to scrape the stuff off so they could just take off their helmets. When Schmidt finally did free himself and breathe in that dust-filled air, he had a total allergic attack. Sneezing, sinus buildup, runny eyes and nose and itchy throat, a downright moon dust fever. His symptoms lasted two hours, and his experience does align with research from NASA doctors who have found that humans can be allergic to the substance that makes up lunar dust. Despite the reaction, Schmidt did persevere. He collected more moon rock samples on that mission than any other, some of which have been pivotal in our growing understanding of the moon. For example, it's thanks to Schmidt's samples that we know the moon was once volcanically active and that it once contained water. And that does it for this episode of This Week I Learned. My sources this week include the e-newsletter Now I Know from Dan Lewis, Priceonomics.com, Hakai Magazine, which is all about coastal science and societies, and the week's sister site, Mental Floss. You can find links to all these places to read more about the facts I've mentioned, and you can also check out the rest of the week's podcast, including 7-Minute Explainers and 7-Minute Opinions by going to theweek.com slash podcasts. And as always, if you like what you hear, please do let us know by leaving us a rating or a review on iTunes. Happy listening.